take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We'll be in the passage that we've already read, but take out your copy of God's Word, Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> we'll be looking at verses 26 to 45. You perhaps may be visiting with us today and not have a copy of the Word of God of your own. If that's the case, we would love to give you a Bible today. So see myself uh, or anybody that looks like they have been here a while standing around and if they seem, if, if you know their church members, see them. We'll make sure you get a copy of God's Word uh, today. There was a young boy traveling by airplane to visit his grandparents, and he happened to sit beside a man who just happened to be a seminary professor, one who trains preachers and the like. The boy was reading a Sunday school take-home paper, something one of his Sunday school teachers had given him, and he was going back over that on the plane, and the professor thought he would have some fun with the, the little fella, seminary professor, Bible man that he was. He said, young man, if you can tell me something God can do, I will give you a big, shiny apple. The boy thought for a moment, And then he replied, Mister, if you can tell me God, something God can't do, I'll give you a whole barrel of apples. I want to talk to you this morning about the God of the impossible. And the sad but actual truth for so many of us is that we forget who God is, don't we, on a regular basis? It's good that we have times like Advent, we revisit familiar stories and truths to be reminded that we serve the God of the impossible. Maybe you're here today. You know, the Christmas season is tough for a lot of folks. Maybe you're here today, and this is just an, it's, it's an awful time of year for you. Maybe you've lost loved ones around this time, or in this past year you've lost loved ones, and you're grieving like you've never grieved because of that. Maybe there are relational issues going on in your life, and you're fearful of what's going to happen in your marriage or in your family situation with a child or your parents or whatever it may be. Maybe you're here and you've experienced great disappointment in your career this year. Who knows what is going on? Maybe you just come and, 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 and you've, you've been working at whatever it may be, at family or work or whatever, all year, and, and yet it just doesn't seem like you can get any traction anywhere and you, you just feel rather hopeless. Well, I want to remind you today through this, this truth of God's Word that we're going to look at, this story we've already read, that we serve the God of the impossible. We serve the God of the impossible. And we need to sound like, in the worst of times, we need to remember the words of the little boy. Mister, if you can tell me something God can't do, I'll give you a whole barrel of apples. And so let's look at Luke chapter 1. Here's the take-home truth. As we think about the God of the impossible, here's the take-home truth. If God graciously chose to come to earth as our substitute and Savior... Through a virgin's womb, there is nothing our God cannot do. Let's walk through this wonderful encounter that we've already read. And I want you to learn as we unpack these verses, three truths about God's grace to us as we think about the God 
of the impossible. The God of the impossible has given us, number one, grace for impossible assignments. Notice with me in verses 26 to 33, God's grace for impossible assignments. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greetings this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. God's grace for impossible assignments. In three different phrases in the verses we just read, and they're highlighted for you on the screen, in three different phrases, Gabriel assures Mary of God's grace already given to her for the impossible assignment that he's about to announce. Greetings, O favored one. Phrase number one, the Lord is with you. Phrase number two, and then finally at the end of verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The word used for favor in both of these verses is the word we translate in other places, grace. God's grace for impossible Assignments. The Savior was coming, obviously, but had not yet arrived and died and rose from the dead when Mary got this impossible assignment. You know, if you're a child of God in this room this morning, if you depend on Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, for the perfect righteousness God requires of you, if you depend on Him for a certain eternity in His presence forever, you do realize that you have found favor and grace with God, and you are one of His graced ones, favored ones, and that by His Spirit, God is today in the present tense, hear me, with you, right? You do know that, right? And God's grace that was there for an impossible assignment for Mary is there for you. But just try to put yourself in her place. Again, you and I know about the virgin birth of Christ, the life, perfect life, and sin-atoning death of Christ on the cross. Three days later, his victorious resurrection, his ascension to heaven. The fact that today we have a Savior who sits at the Father's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. You and I know all of that when we get an impossible assignment. But none of that had happened when Mary got her impossible Verse 31 goes on and he lays it out there, Gabriel does. And behold, here's your impossible assignment, Mary. You've, You've been favored. God's grace is with you. God himself is with you. But behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. This is who your son's going to be. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, even as the prophets had prophesied for hundreds of years. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, not just for a little while like other earthly kings in the kingdom of Israel, but forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That is to say it will continue forever, but also it will expand beyond Israel to the nations and include you and I. 
as Gentiles. What a beautiful description of the work of Christ. Even as the announcements made that she would conceive and bear the Son of the Most High, the angel tells her all that he will accomplish. You see, we sin. Gabriel said he will atone for it. We have pain. Gabriel said he'll reverse it. We have disappointment. Gabriel says he will erase it. We yearn for justice. Gabriel said as the king of all things, he will bring it. Gabriel comes to Mary, and in the text we read verses earlier said she was unsettled. She was fearful and and, and, and sort of shocked and, and, and didn't know what to do with this appearing and this saying that he was bringing to her. That's a good response because this is Gabriel, the angel of God, who told us in his encounter with Zechariah earlier in Luke chapter 1 that he stands in the very presence of God. I mean, we talked about how priests don't see angels, didn't see angels regularly in that day. But a young teenage virgin girl sure doesn't see. Poor, out in the country, sure doesn't see angels every day. And here the, the, the angel comes and effectively says, Miss Mary, you at all of maybe 13 or 14 years old and still a virgin, not even married yet, having never known a man, are going to be the mother of God's son come to earth to save the world. Can you imagine how impossible that assignment would have seemed to Mary? Furthermore, her potential for fear would have included things like the likelihood of her being left to beg as an unwed mother and rejected woman were Joseph to do what most men would do, and that is to decide he wanted no part of this craziness going on, all this Messiah talk and, and this, you know, this virgin birth deal and God coming on, on Mary and making her pregnant in some crazy, miraculous way. So there would be financial ruin, there would be a ruined t- reputation, and her soon-to-be marriage that she had looked so forward to would be canceled. Her pregnancy would basically be a death sentence for Mary. Jesus would be born to a woman under the curse of death in order to grow up and take the curse that Mary and all of humanity deserved. God's grace for, an Im- for impossible assignments isn't always easy. And often includes many difficulties. This is an amazing announcement, but sometimes we don't stop to think about what happened next. I mean, have you ever thought how you explain a virgin birth? How you go home and and start showing, ladies, and you're not married and never even been with a man and everybody in the community knows it. God's grace to us for impossible assignments isn't always easy and often includes many difficulties. And by the way, sometimes when God is most greatly blessing us, favoring us, as he said he was, Mary, life just flat hurts. It's part of his plan. Now, that'll mess with some of your theologies. 
but it needs to mess with it and fix it and show you that God's grace for impossible assignments doesn't mean a bed of roses in this life. But J.D. Greer says it's always good because it brings you to all the promises and presence of Jesus. God comes to us, doesn't he? Sometimes with seemingly impossible assignments. None that compare to the virgin birth of the Savior of the world, I'm almost certain. Facetiously said, sarcastically said, obviously not. But God comes to us with seemingly impossible assignments and we act like he expects us to do it on our own and therefore we say no and never accept the assignment. You ever been guilty? Don't raise your hand. But you have, and I have. You see, you and I, based on what we see in the life of Mary, can know and experience God's grace for impossible assignments. Because here's the deal. If God graciously chose to come to earth as our substitute and Savior through a virgin's womb, there's nothing our God cannot do. He can pull off that impossible assignment in and through you. God's grace for impossible assignments. Notice with me, secondly, though, God's grace for incredulous servants. Sometimes when us preachers try to alliterate things, we we have to really get reachy. We have to reach far. We have to go to, what's that thing called, a thesaurus. We have to find synonyms that have the same letter we're looking for. So the word incredulous means doubting or having a really hard time believing servant. God's grace for incredulous servants. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? We've learned a couple weeks ago, there's a couple different kinds of doubt that our hearts experience in life, aren't there? Two weeks ago, we saw Zechariah's unbelieving doubt. He didn't believe the angel's announcement could happen. And God's angel, we saw there, struck him deaf and mute for nine months as a result of unbelieving doubt. You and I have experienced unbelieving doubt, haven't we? We've heard God tell us something or seen it written, heard it read off the pages of Scripture. We've seen the promises of God, heard him speak through the word. And we just flat out doubted, but not in a way that we wondered how it could happen. We just didn't believe it could. Here we see the honest doubt in young Mary's heart. Mary's heart wasn't full of unbelief. Mary didn't understand how Gabriel's words would happen. But she believed they could happen as seen in her quick acceptance of the angel's incredible explanation. As the text goes on to show us, you pick it up in verse 36 with me, and behold, he continues to give her some encouragement. Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. Now, we don't know if Mary knew that already, if that's the first time she'd heard about it. They live some miles apart. And yet, the angel points to another miraculous conception, not virgin birth, not from on high, but 
God enabled a dead womb, an old woman's womb, to bear a child. And her and Zechariah, on the human level, conceived. And she was about to bear a son. And then he underscores this sort of central truth in this whole story. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary, I've just told you that you're going to have a son who's virgin born. God is going to come on you. And then he's fixing to say that in a minute. God is, this will be the son of God. And, and here's what I want you to understand. Nothing's impossible with God. Your old relative is pregnant. Your 80, 90-something-year-old relative Elizabeth, she's going to have a bouncing baby boy for nothing. The virgin birth or a, a birth from a dead womb. Nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, I love this. I just wish I prayed this way every day when God shows me something to do from his word. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We skip down to the end of her visit with with, uh, Elizabeth. And there Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. How do we know Mary... Mary's heart was not full of unbelief because so quickly in response to the angel's word in verse 38, she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I still don't understand how you're going to do it, God, but here I am. And according to Elizabeth, she who believed, this is who Mary was, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So here's the thing. Just because you don't understand how God will do what he calls you to do, do not respond to his call with unbelieving doubt. Rather, talk to God like Mary did with honest doubt. Take your questions to him in an act of faith, believing that he can and asking him to clarify how he desires to work in your life. Whether he ever clarifies as much as he did for Mary or not, believe he can. Amen? Because you serve the God of the impossible. I believe many of us today, as as believers all across this nation and perhaps the world, many of us live substandard lives. That is to say, not the lives that God calls the normal Christian life. Substandard. Though the American church has for decades now been accepting such lives of ours as normal. These substandard lives are lives where we as followers of Jesus, we know what the word of God clearly calls us to. We know the truth that we cannot obey God's word on our own. And we simply do not believe that God can enable our obedience to the word's teachings. God has told you that he will, by his spirit, give you the same power, Romans, to follow Jesus in obedience that he exercised by that same spirit to raise Jesus from the dead. We don't have an excuse. It's not a lack of power to follow Jesus. Ability through the Spirit and by His grace to follow Jesus. It's a matter of believing God, taking Him at His word, and walking in it.
You see, Paul said, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, don't you reckon he can, he can fulfill his calling in your life? Don't you think he can, he can enable you to do the real simple stuff of the New Testament? Like love one another, forgive one another, be long-suffering, patient with one another, and, and, and right on down the line. Or things like the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. Don't you think he can enable you to open your mouth and tell someone about Jesus? If he can raise Jesus from the dead. You see, Mary's story makes it clear that God's grace is available for us, even his incredulous servants. But let's be those in those moments who doubt with faith. Who have an honest doubt, not an unbelieving doubt. Let this be the day, brother and sister that you start trusting and obeying God according to his word and quit excusing yourself by saying, I just can't, I'm just, I'm just not that spiritual. If you're, let me, hear me, if you're his at all, if you're his at all, you have all of the power of the resurrection resident in your life by the Holy Spirit. Hello? And if you don't have that power, and if you, when you look to your Lord and, and, you, and you pray and, the, and that power is not there, then you don't have him. Hello? He doesn't just give some the Spirit of God to indwell them. You could be one uh, of whom it said, many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not go to church all our lives and, and attend Sunday school and know a lot about the Bible? And Jesus will look at you and say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because you've not truly trusted him and rested in him. But here's the deal, if you've truly rested in him, you are filled with his spirit and therefore have the power of the resurrection available to you. But you know, I, I believe there's also some of you here today who know exactly what specific service God is calling you to. Not just a general obedience to scripture, but a specific service God is calling you to be that a faithful and bold witness at work, be it a faithful and obedient and different kind of student at the middle school or the high school so your friends know Jesus is that beautiful and worthy and good, no matter if they make fun of you. Or maybe it's the ministry of servant leadership in our church that God would call you to, the, the ministry of teaching in our children's ministry or the ministry of discipling our students and youth. Older men and women, the ministry of discipling a younger man or woman, even as exhorted by Paul, in the letters to Timothy, the grace of generous giving, not just of your money, though that's included, but of your time, your spiritual gifts to the kingdom in a greater way than ever before. Perhaps the call God is, is, is putting on your life right now, the, 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 the way you hear his still small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you is to give the rest of your life to reaching an unreached people group with the gospel of Jesus. But because you can't understand how God could possibly accomplish that call, whatever it is, in your life, your response so far has been to God to live in unbelief. Uh, uh, your response has been a, 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 a response of unbelief, a passive, unspoken no to his call because you don't think he can figure out how to get it done in and through you. Oh, how quickly we forget the words that Mary heard from the angel. Nothing will be impossible with God. Never has been, never will be. Amen? 
J.D. Greer said, there's only one deal that God will make. God's not in the dealing business, by the way, negotiating business. But there's one deal he will make. All of Jesus to you for full and complete control of your life. And that's the only deal there is. Because, you see, Jesus is not just the Savior, not just the hell insurance for everybody that doesn't want to go there. By the way, who do you know that does? He's not just the Savior, the the ticket out of hell for people that don't want to go. He is Lord. He rose from the dead to reign and be the boss of you, the boss of me. He calls the shots. And you know, when we realize the grace and mercy he's given us and realize he's the God of the impossible, why would we not just say, as Mary did, behold, I am your servant. Let it be to me as your word has said. We can't lose. What would the ministry of local churches, including that of East LJ Baptist Church, in the year 2020 look like if every believer responded like Mary with honest doubt that led to faith and obedience where we take the God of the impossible at his word and let him do what he said he can and will do in our lives? What would it look like? Can you imagine with me? Can you dream about that for a second? You see, God's grace is available to you when you're incredulous about his word and his call. Let's dream a little more. How many lost souls, our relatives, your coworkers, our neighbors, an unreached people group might come to Jesus in the next calendar year if you and I, every person in this room who knows, who claims to know Jesus would truly live that way? What would that look like? You see, if God graciously chose to come to earth as our substitute and Savior through a virgin's womb, there is nothing our God cannot do. Thirdly and finally, Notice with me God's ultimate grace in the incarnation. We've seen God's grace for impossible assignments. We've seen God's grace to incredulous servants. But notice with me God's ultimate grace in the incarnation. Verse 35, and the angel answered her when she said, how, 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 how can this be? I'm, never, I'm, I'm still a virgin. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. This verse expresses one of the great mysteries of our faith, the incarnation. That is, God becoming fully man while at the same time remaining fully God. It's a mystery of our faith. It's an unexplainable reality because of the nature of it, right? And yet it is a necessary pillar in our faith. More on that in a moment. The text later on, we find in verse 42, Elizabeth's response to Mary's arrival and pregnancy when she first shows up at Elizabeth's house, make the miracle and the glory of the incarnation clear. Elizabeth, it says, she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. She understood that Mary was pregnant with her Savior. And she was freaking out, blown away, just praising God. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. We were talking about this Wednesday night at Bible study. 
I don't know how all this stuff works, but we saw a couple weeks ago, there's no one in the New Testament of whom it's said that the Holy Spirit filled him from his mother's womb except John the Baptist. That would be Elizabeth's baby right here. And when Jesus, when, when Mary and, and unborn Jesus come into the room, when, when Mary comes into the room with the promise of, 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 the, of the virgin birth, let me back up. I've got, to get, I've got two pregnant women here and I'm getting confused. Mary's almost pregnant at this point. Perhaps already, we don't really know. But when Mary comes into the room, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, womb leaps for joy. Now somebody says, well, probably, I mean, it just happened, coincidentally, that the baby kicked at that point. Well, that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> the Bible says the baby leapt for joy in that moment. Uh, the same baby who was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of conception. I don't know what all that means, but there's just an amazing thing happening in this exchange. And what a beautiful affirmation to Mary of the word of the Lord to her about her baby. You see, Jesus had to be... Why why is the virgin birth important? Why does it matter? Does it matter? Must we believe in the virgin birth of Jesus... that the baby born of Mary was Mary's baby, but the father was God himself supernaturally impregnating her and causing her baby to be fully God and fully man all at the same time. Do we have to believe that? Or is that just kind of a secondary issue we can agree to disagree on? Does it really matter? As long as we get the story right. It matters. I said a moment ago, the virgin birth is a pillar of our faith. Because who this baby is makes all the difference in what he can accomplish in his life, death, and resurrection. You see, Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man in order to be a fitting and able Savior for humanity. And this is the truth of the incarnation that we hold firmly and celebrate fondly during Advent. I'm going to read several passages quickly that speak to the importance and the beauty and the truth of the incarnation. In John 1, verse 1, John begins his gospel this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember that? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light was Jesus. The Word is Jesus. And John describes in in a metaphor here the birth and life, the incarnation of the Word of God. God become man. In verse 14, he spells it out a little more clearly. And the Word... God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The language John used to describe the birth and and incarnation of Jesus in verse 14 is language from the Old Testament where God would dwell with his people Israel in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Literally, in in verse 14, you can translate these words, and the word tabernacled among us. 
became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Word became flesh. The Son of God became man. And the presence of God in Jesus tabernacled among us. Suddenly the presence had returned. You'll remember in Old Testament history that the presence of God had long departed from the temple. In God's rejection of the nation of Israel and yet in the coming of Christ, the glory returns. The presence returns. The Word of God in the womb of a woman. And John said, we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We could touch Him. John would talk about in, 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 in First John. We could touch Him. We could, we could feel Him. He was real. Was, he had real flesh and bones. He was fully man, but... He had the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by, his, by the blood of his cross. Verse 19 is about the earthly life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For in him, that is, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He had to be God and he had to be man in order to be a fitting Savior for us. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus said, if you've seen, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. Hebrews 7 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priest, the contrast in Hebrews 7 is between the old priesthood of the Levitical covenant and the new covenant in Jesus. The former priest, plural, were many in number because they were prevented by death from, from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's risen. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered himself up, for the law appoints men and their weaknesses as high priest, but the word of the oath, God's oath, even in reference here, God's oath in the Abrahamic covenant, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 17. Hear these truths about your Savior. He's fully God, he's fully man. Since, therefore, 
the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. How beautiful is this? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Two things in, the, in that, last, that, that, that last verse there that, that, that explain why Jesus had to be human. He had to be God because we needed a perfect sacrifice. You can't be human and be perfect, right? None of us would work. We had to have perfection. We had to have power in a Savior. That's why Jesus had to be God, but he had to be man so that he could not only be a merciful and and, and sympathetic high priest, he could understand where you are, he could help you where you are, but notice the last phrase of, of that verse we just read, so that he could be a propitiation for your sins. You see, he had to truly be one of us to be a true substitute for us. He had to share in our flesh. According to the economy of God, he had to share in our flesh to truly be our substitute, to truly die in our place and become the propitiation for our sins. And because of all that, Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. He was holy. Fully God, fully man, and and this is why John the Baptist one day looks up and sees Jesus coming and cries out in John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the perfect and only Lamb who with one sacrifice took away the sin of the world. He was fully God and fully man. A perfect sacrifice, but one who was one of us and therefore could be our true substitute. You see, if God graciously chose to come to earth as our substitute and Savior through a virgin's womb, there is nothing our God cannot do. And here's the truth of this passage. He did. Jesus was born of a virgin. God became man through a virgin's womb, to save you and me. If he would come that way, there's nothing he couldn't do. And guess what? He came. He lived a perfect, law-abiding life while he was here in my place. He was, he was holy and righteous for me. He went to the cross, not for the curse of his own sins, but for the curse of my sins. Peter says on that cross, he bore in his body my sins. Isaiah 53, by the way, an 800-year-old prophecy way before Jesus was ever born. Isaiah 53 says he was smitten for our transgressions. By his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53 says. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. The Scriptures say he was dead for three days. He died a real physical death on the cross... And he laid there for three days. But on the third day, the one who had laid his life down took it back up. The God who had given his son to be the savior of the world resurrected him by the power of the spirit. And on the third day, he rose in victory over sin, proving several things. One, his life had been perfect. Two, his death had been enough. And three, he was now and forever Lord of all. 
this is our Savior. I'm so glad that God sent his son to be virgin born. Because if he can pull that off, he can pull off the resurrection. Here's the thing. Without the resurrection, nothing matters. But he's alive today. And in light of the resurrection, the virgin birth was a key component, but almost paling in significance compared to the resurrection. And yet it's all a package, amen? He had to be virgin born. He had to die on the cross. He had to rise again to be our Savior. And folks, he did. And so we celebrate his first coming during the Advent season. And because he rose, we anticipate his coming again. If you're here and you don't know the complete forgiveness of all your sins by God and know there's everlasting peace between you and God and have no hope of eternity in his presence while you now live with his indwelling presence and power in this life, if you don't know that kind of relationship with Jesus, will you come this morning to the perfect and powerful Savior for sinners and receive grace and salvation this morning? This this Advent 2019, third Sunday of Advent, you can know him. As that beautiful hymn puts it and makes the invitation to you, come behold the glorious mystery. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity, our longing in our darkness. Now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh, to ransom us. He's condescended to be your Savior and he did take on flesh and through his life and death ransomed you. Will you trust him? That's the gift he's given this Christmas. Will you take that gift? That's all you have to do. Church, the question of Advent for you is this. If you believe that Jesus came the first time and secured your peace with God by his perfect life, death, and resurrection in your place. And and if you believe that he will come again to take you home to heaven and pour out his wrath on the world, then what needs to change in your life today to make it unavoidable and unmistakable that you are indeed a follower of the God of the impossible, the God of the incarnation? What needs to change today, right here, right now? Whatever it is, remember if God graciously chose to come to earth as our substitute and Savior through a virgin's womb, there is nothing our God cannot do. Let's pray.